0: Chapter 4 of The Life of David Brainerd by John Stiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The State of His Mind Previous to Entering Upon His Great Undertakings, Probable Reasons of His Dejection and Mental Exercises, His Destination as a Missionary, His Visiting the Indians at Kwanameek. The period upon which we are now entering was to Brainerd a season of deep mental affliction. Like his divine master, he must be tempted before he commences his public engagements. Brainerd was about to honor God in a remarkable manner, and Satan is determined to assail him with all the artillery of hell. It is truly affecting to turn over the pages of his diary at this awful interval. The irreligious mind may indeed consider them as the memorials of weakness, and may stigmatize religion as the cause of all the melancholy and distressing feelings which they record. But the man, who has any knowledge of the human character, and who understands the nature of true religion, will form a very different opinion. Mr. Brainerd, having resolved on becoming a missionary, immediately began to prepare himself for the arduous task, to settle his temporal affairs, to examine his own heart, to look all the difficulties he should have to encounter in the face, and to take an affectionate leave of his numerous and highly respected friends. At this time he gave a most striking proof of the disinterestedness of his motives and of his entire devotedness to the cause of God. Having a small estate bequeathed him by his father, he generously determined, imagining that money would be no assistance to him in his missionary undertaking, to educate for the ministry some young person of abilities and piety. Such an one he found, whom he denominates a dear friend, and as long as he lived he liberally supported him at college. This insistence of generosity discloses a lovely feature of his character, but his diary at this season exhibits him struggling with the vileness of his nature, sinking under a sense of his own unworthiness, and almost ready to abandon a work for which he was ready to sacrifice the dearest temporal interest on earth. Luther was qualified for eminent usefulness by three invaluable teachers prayer, meditation, and temptation, and in the school of these instructors, Brainerd acquired a profound knowledge of his own heart of the loveliness, excellence, suitableness, and glory of the Redeemer, and of the subtlety, power, and malice of his worst enemy. It was this which, no doubt, enabled him to speak to others with so much wisdom, pathos, and faithfulness, and which qualified him to be an affectionate adviser in all cases of conscience and mental affliction. He was thus a scribe well instructed, thoroughly furnished for every good word and work. A few extracts from his diary in which he relates his painful conflicts will illustrate the truth of the above remarks. Not that he was always thus dejected. He sometimes mentions spiritual enjoyment and delight, but for the most part we find him in the deep waters. Jonathan Edwards informs us that for twelve days he was extremely dejected, discouraged, and distressed, and evidently very much under the power of melancholy. Quote, And there are, says he, from day to day most bitter complaints of exceeding vileness, ignorance, corruption, and amazing load of guilt, unworthiness to creep on God's earth, everlasting uselessness, fitness for nothing, etc, and sometimes expressions even of horror at the thoughts of ever preaching again. January fourteenth, seventeen forty two. My spiritual conflicts were unspeakably dreadful, heavier than the mountains and overflowing floods. I seemed enclosed in hell itself. I was deprived of all sense of God, even of his being, and that was my misery. This was distress, the nearest akin to the damned's torments that I ever endured. Their torment, I am sure, will consist much in a privation of God, and consequently of all good. This taught me the absolute dependence of a creature upon the Creator, for every crumb of happiness it enjoys. Oh, I feel that if there is no God, though I might live forever here and enjoy not only this, but all other worlds, I should be ten thousand times more miserable than a toad. My soul was in such anguish I could not eat, but felt, as I supposed, a poor wretch would, that is just going to the place of execution. I was almost swallowed up with anguish when I saw the people gathering together to hear me preach. However, I went to the house of God and found not much relief in the first prayer, but afterwards God was pleased to give me freedom and enlargement, and I spent the evening comfortably. Lord's Day, January 23rd Scarce ever felt myself so unfit to exist as now. I saw I was not worthy of a place among the Indians where I am going. I thought I should be ashamed to look them in the face, and much more to have any respect shown me. Indeed, I felt myself banished from the earth, as if all places were too good for such a wretch as I. I thought I should be ashamed to go among the very savages of Africa. I appeared to myself a creature fit for nothing, neither heaven nor earth. None knows, but those that feel it, what the soul endures that is sensibly shut out from the presence of God. Alas! It is more bitter than death. On Thursday, after a considerable time spent in prayer and Christian conversation, he rode to New London. 28th. Here I found some carried away with a false zeal and bitterness. Oh, the want of a gospel temper is greatly to be lamented. I spent the evening in conversing with some about some points of conduct in both ministers and private Christians, but did not agree with them. God had not taught them with briars and thorns to be of a kind disposition towards mankind. February 2nd, I preached my farewell sermon at the house of an aged man who had been unable to attend on the public worship for some time, and this morning spent the time in prayer almost wherever I went. Having taken leave of my friends, I set out on my journey towards the Indians, though by the way I was to spend some time at East Hampton on Long Island By the leave of the commissioners, being accompanied by a messenger from East Hampton, we traveled to Lyme. On the road I felt an uncommon pressure of mind. I seemed to struggle hard for some pleasure here below and was loath to give up all. I saw I was throwing myself into many hardships. I thought it would be less difficult to lie down in the grave, but yet I chose to go rather than stay. I came to Lyme that night. Lord's Day, February 13th. I was under a great degree of discouragement, knew not how it was possible for me to preach in the afternoon, was ready to give up all for gone, but God was pleased to assist me. In the evening my heart was sweetly drawn out after God and devoted to Him. March 19th. I was distressed under a sense of my ignorance, darkness, and unworthiness, got alone, and poured out my complaint to God in the bitterness of my soul in the afternoon rode to Newark and had some sweetness in conversation with Mr. Burr and in praying together. The various causes which produced this frequent recurrence of gloomy dejection and awful darkness may be traced, probably, to the influence of physical organization on the mind, remarkable views of the abominable nature of sin and of his own native depravity, and to some remains of a legal Arminian spirit. The mysterious and intimate union of soul and body is sometimes in the present state mutually injurious to each. If disease assail the body, if the nervous system receive a shock, it subjects the soul to anxiety and distress. And the mind having received this influence always turns to the dark side of every question. And according to the importance of that question, it feels disquietude. And as religion is a subject of all others, the most important, as it involves in it an immortal interest, it is often the innocent occasion of internal misery to a soul infected with melancholy. Footnote. It is possible that the above statement of physical organization influencing the mind to indulge gloomy and almost despairing apprehensions on the subject of religion may by some readers be misconstrued, and from such misconstruction the most fatal consequences may follow. But to prevent the indulgence of error on a question of such importance, I beg leave to offer the following remarks. Some persons not at all subject to melancholy may be inclined to resolve the remorse of conscience and the fears of eternal misery which sometimes rack their minds into the influence of this morbid affection, and thus may awfully deceive themselves." but it may be observed that this very propensity to ascribe their wretchedness to such a cause is an undoubted proof that their judgment on this point is most erroneous. Persons really under the influence of melancholy can scarcely ever be persuaded of it. Instead of anxiously seeking relief from this or any other cheering consideration, they always pour upon the dark side. They are the last to discover their own malady. Another thing against which we should guard is endeavoring to persuade persons to whose religious character we are strangers and who perhaps are laboring under deep convictions of sin and who have never really fled to the Savior for refuge and who have therefore no consistent views of divine truth that their distress is the effect of melancholy. By conversation, a skillful minister may soon ascertain the real situation of a person's mind who applies to him for advice and instruction and to ascribe concern about religion, a sense of depravity and horror on account of it, to lowness of spirit, to dejection, etc., would be to imitate those, quote, blind guides, end quote, who declare that everything like seriousness of mind proceeds from such a source, and who send the diseased individual who presumes to think of heaven, hell, and eternity, to the ballroom and the theater for a cure." this doctrine of melancholy as the cause of misery when religion is the object of attention is capable of another and a very dangerous abuse a person may conclude that if distress of soul on account of religion may sometimes proceed from bodily constitution joy and delight on the same account may also be the effect of a different corporeal temperament it is very true that there is an unfounded joy which may be mistaken for genuine piety as well as a groundless sorrow which may be unjustly ascribed to its influence. But, quote, joy and peace in believing, end quote, may soon be distinguished from the raptures of mere human passion and the fervors of unsanctified affections. And one striking distinction between the Christian and the fanatic with respect to enjoyment is the former distrusts himself and is humble and diffident in proportion to his happiness, while the latter imagines himself infallibly secure, is proud and obtrusive, and bears upon him all the marks of antinomium impiety. I recommend to my readers who may desire satisfaction on this very momentous point, a careful perusal of McLaurin's essay on the scripture, Doctrine of Divine Grace, published with his most admirable sermons, and which may be had of the publisher of this volume, S.T. Armstrong, Cornhill, Boston. End footnote. I have no doubt, but the most afflictive hours in Brainerd's life are to be ascribed to morbid affection to the body of clay gaining an ascendancy over the ethereal spirit. The most cheerful Christians under the influence of certain corporeal maladies have unstrung their harps and suspended them on the willows while they have wept in the bitterness of distress. But religion lost none of its power to make them happy. It remained the same and their rock was as safe amidst the billows as the calm. Yet while the body was diseased, they could not think so. But far would I be from insinuating that this was the only cause of Mr. Brainyard's affliction. On the contrary, I am persuaded that the remarkable views which he had of the dreadful nature of sin and of his own deep depravity produced those sensations of horror and self-loathing, the expressions of which no pious mind can read without a kindred feeling. Brainyard was all over imbued with a spirit of holiness, and he judged not of sin by any other standard than divine rectitude, and immaculate purity. Of these he had a more perfect idea than is commonly possessed, even by the most eminent Christians. Now how odious, how absolutely detestable must iniquity appear in the eyes of such a man. He had an angel's comprehension of the subject, but he had not an angel's purity. Unhappily he was a sinner, and he had cultivated intensely the study of his own heart, therefore he felt not only abhorrence against sin, as angels feel, But this abhorrence was mingled with the bitterest regret, with the deepest conviction that his soul was blackened with crime, that he was a wretch unworthy to live, much less to preach the glorious gospel, an honor for which even Gabriel might forego the bliss and the glories of the celestial state. In such a sorrow as this, there is something sacred. It should be viewed with reverence, and if we could discover the truth of ourselves, if we could know all the sinfulness of our nature, and at the same time possess a divine principle to abhor it, we should cease to wonder at the strong language in which Brainerd expresses the intenseness of his woe. It is but the feeble utterance of a grief unutterable. But it will be asked, was there no balm for this wound? Yes, there was a balm in Gilead. There was a physician who was able to bind up the broken heart, but Brainerd's soul was not so oppressed with a sense of the infinite sufficiency of the remedy as of the desperate nature of the disease. Remaining unbelief and a latent spirit of self-righteousness seemed to be the glories of the gospel and denied him the comfortable assurance of a faith which believes in Christ as able and willing to save to the very uttermost all that come unto God by him. We dishonor the Savior when we make our depravity greater than his merit and sufficiency, when we are more mortified at the discovery of unexpected sinfulness in our nature than rejoiced at the thought that his precious blood cleanseth from all sin. These observations I have here introduced because I think they are suggested by this part of our narrative, and because I imagine they are of a useful tendency. Having presented my readers with the dark side of the picture, I will now furnish them with a few extracts of a more lively and happy cast, and which will prove that Brainerd, though often dejected, was not always comfortless. February 15th. Early in the day I felt some comfort. Afterwards I walked into a neighboring grove and felt more as a stranger on earth than ever before, dead to all the enjoyments of the world as if I had been dead in a natural sense. In the evening I had sweetness in secret duty. God was then my portion, and my soul rose above those deep waters into which I have sunk so low of late. Seventeenth, I preached at a little village belonging to East Hampton, and God was pleased to give me his gracious presence and assistance, so that I spoke with freedom, boldness, and power. In the evening I spent some time with a dear Christian friend, felt as on the brink of eternity. My soul enjoyed sweetness in lively apprehensions of standing before the glorious God, prayed with my dear friend, and discoursed with the utmost solemnity. And truly it was a little emblem of heaven itself. I find my soul is more refined and weaned from a dependence on my frames and spiritual feelings. Eighteenth. Most of the day I found access to the throne of grace. Blessed be the Lord for any intervals of heavenly delight and composure, while I am engaged in the field of battle. Oh, that I might be serious, solemn, and always vigilant while in an evil world. March 7th. This morning when I arose, I found my heart go forth after God in longing desires of conformity to Him, and in secret prayer found myself sweetly quickened and drawn out in praises to God for all He had done for me, and for all my inward trials and distresses. My heart ascribed glory, 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 to the blessed God, and bid welcome to all inward distress again, if God saw meet to exercise me with it. Time appeared but an inch long and eternity at hand, and I thought I could with patience and cheerfulness bear anything for the cause of God. For I saw that a moment would bring me to a world of peace and blessedness and my soul by the strength of the Lord rose far above this lower world and all the vain amusements and disappointments of it. Lord's Day, March 13th At noon thought it impossible for me to preach by reason of bodily weakness and inward deadness. In the first prayer I was so weak that I could hardly stand, but in sermon God strengthened me so that I spoke near an hour and a half with freedom, clearness, and tender power, From Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, quote, Enoch walked with God, end quote. I was enabled to insist on a close walk with God and to leave this as my parting advice to God's people here, that they should walk with God. May the God of all grace succeed my poor labors in this place. At the time to which the whole of the preceding part of this chapter refers, Mr. Brainerd was chiefly engaged in traveling from place to place, visiting his friends and bidding them adieu previous to his departure as he imagined to the forks of delaware for this was intended to have been the first field of his labors but from information which the correspondence of the society for promoting christian knowledge had received of the unsettled state of the indians there and also of the hopeful prospect of success that a missionary might have among the Indians of Conamique, it was resolved that this last should be the place of Mr. Brainerd's destination. Conamique is in the province of New York and situated in the woods between Stockbridge and Albany, and thither on Tuesday the 22nd of March in the year 1743, and nearly at the age of 25 he directed his steps." On Thursday, the 31st of March, he arrived at Mr. Sargent's of Stockbridge. He was dejected and very disconsolate through the greater part of his journey. His mind was, no doubt, deeply impressed with a sense of the greatness of his undertaking, and his body fatigued by journeying, which in some degree accounts for his gloom and melancholy. End of chapter four.